Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Dress the History of Fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. With over 7 billion people in the world, we all have one thing in common. Every day, we all get dressed. Welcome to Dressed, the History of Fashion, a podcast that explores the who, what, when of why we wear. We are fashion historians and your hosts, April Callahan and Cassidy Zachary. Well, today, Dress listeners, we bring you a very special interview with one very special woman. The groundbreaking fashion icon, model Pat Cleveland, joins us today to talk about her 50-plus year career as a model. Yay! I know, it's so exciting. (laughs) And actually, we have the universe to thank for making this happen, right, April? Mm -hmm. You and I have had Pat on our list since day one of this podcast. Yes, literally you and I were talking about her memoir, Walking with the Muses, earlier this year. And I'm not kidding, the very next day, we got an email from the publicist and dress listener, Mark Rhodes, proposing that Pat come on the podcast. So it was fate. It was kismet. Thank you so much, Mark, for making this happen. (laughs) Yes, thank you, Universe and Mark, for answering all of our fashion history prayers. I'm glad you mentioned Pat's memoir, April, because you and I have both read it, and it is wonderful. I keep recommending it to people. (laughs) Yes, it's so good. Um, We highly recommend it to you, our listeners, because Pat really provides this behind-the-scenes insider access into a world many of us can only dream of. And it is really this beautiful testament to her life and career, but also those many, many loved ones that helped her make it all possible. So go out and get yourself a copy. Yes, do it. And um, it's available on Kindle. So I read mine on the train, which was kind of cool. But we spend a lot of time talking about fashion history on the show. Obviously, that's what the show is entirely about. But very rarely do we get to meet and talk to one of fashion history's creators. So Pat, thank you so much for being here. Pat, welcome to Dress. It is such a pleasure to have you with us here today. I'm here and I'm happy <laughs> with you too. And if our <laughs> listeners are not already aware of your legacy, they are certainly now because April and I have talked about you on multiple occasions throughout the last two seasons of our show. 
And you've been on our wish list since day one. So I just want to give a special thank you to our mutual friend, Mark Rhodes, who made this all possible. Yay. Yeah, it's <laughs> very special for me to talk to you. So thank you for being here today. And I um, I really just want to start at the beginning um, and kind of hear about a very young Patricia Cleveland. I'm curious if you have a first memory of being inspired by clothing and if you can tell us about how you were first inspired to your early love of fashion. Well, I think it all comes to the world of art. You know, art and music and movies and impressions of people who had like a kind of bright spirit would dress up and especially my mom who dressed up in her own clothes that she made and they were pretty spectacular. She was a Leo, so a really good show off. (laughs) And she would go to parties dressed up and win costume balls and make clothes at home. And, you know, the dancers would wear them and the singers who came to visit, you know, like Eartha Kid, and she made a dress for Marian Anderson, my godmother, and she would make some clothes for friends. And I thought, you know, having all those fabrics in the house and boa feathers and sequins, I think it just sparkled my mind. And having those dancers in the living room, you know, from all these wonderful places. My aunt was a dancer, my mother a painter. So I was kind of grown up in between the stir of watercolor and fabric and dancing and music. <laughs> yeah, and I, I've read your memoir actually a couple times now, and I just, I loved reading about these these early years growing up with your mom and your aunt. I think you said something like, these early years in New York with your mom was was a time of enchantment. So it's really like this magical mm-hmm. experience of your childhood. Very much so. Mm-hmm. Because, you know, when somebody has a certain spirit of liveliness, no matter what, you just get infected by it, yeah. you know, and it's like, yeah, that's what you got. <laughs> and I think it was your mom, right, who decided you should try your hand at modeling. I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit about your modeling career, your early modeling career, the start to it, and, you know, your first experiences with the Ebony Fashion Fair. Well, I never thought I would model or anything. It wasn't something that people did really. I mean, you saw a face in the magazine cover and you thought, oh, that's not real or you know, you just look in the magazines, but we always had Vogue and Ebony and Glamour and all the things that were there in the 50s and the 60s. And we looked in and we made the clothes to look kind of like the ones they had or we'd make up something. And so, you know, modeling was not like I didn't think ever. I just thought I'd like maybe be an artist, paint, which I do now. But I I never saw myself like that. And my mom said, well, you know, you could do it. You can do this. Look at them. You look as good. But nobody looked like me. I mean, <laughs> I was like a baby giraffe. I don't know. Maybe animals have some kind of glamour. I don't know. Maybe I was a deer or something. <laughs> but other than that, she saw something in me and she sent some pictures out to Ebony and Vogue and Glamour and through a lot of rejections. And the pictures were taken at uh, Carnegie Hall um, by a famous photographer that my mom knew because when she was uh, always hanging out in the jazz places, you know, she met these wonderful Carl Van Vechten and people like that who would photograph all the Duke Ellingtons and people in the Harlem Renaissance. So when it was time to be photographed, she said, we have to have pictures taken and send them. 
Well, they made the pictures and they made the contact sheets, which is really old fashioned. And she cut them up like little squares and put them in envelopes and send them off to the magazines. And that's what she did. And finally, I got an answer. It was not that I was waiting for it. I had no idea. But it came some months later that Mrs. Johnson from Ebony had sent a request to see me and my mother. And I was like 15 years old. And I had no idea. We went to the Waldorf Astoria and I was dressed like the virgin sacrifice. My mom dressed me that day. I had white tights, white dress, white straw hat, white gloves, white patent leather shoes. <laughs> I just didn't know what to think. I was like a nun walking into the Waldorf and going up to the presidential suite like, what are we doing here? I had no idea. And we get in and we see Mrs. Johnson standing behind this regal desk and asking me to walk. And I was so terrified because I was just like a sprout. And every other girl looked like fully blossomed. And I thought, what am I doing? But she liked me and I was, and she liked me a lot. And she asked if I could be in her fashion show, which traveled around America. And it was a, a benefit to raise money for colleges. And it was the Ebony Fashion Fair. And Mrs. Johnson would go to Europe and buy all the clothes. I think she was the only editor for her who would buy collections because after she would sell them to raise money for the black society so that young people could go to college. So it was all very worthwhile because besides the fact that I got to travel with all of these beautiful clothes, for three months I had to leave my school and my mother came along as a chaperone, and uh, we went around America and did a show every night. Wow. I just remembered I was doing my homework in the bus, my American history homework, looking out the window, seeing America. They always say, know your own backyard before you travel, and that's what I got to do. Not only did that, I got to wear the clothes that I loved, it was Givenchy and Yves Saint Laurent, Dior, Madame Poitou and Levant and uh, Cardin and baby clothes from Yves Saint Laurent. Like babies, they were just not even known. Halston hats and things, you know, that people didn't even, these designers were not even famous yet. And Mrs. Johnson was buying their clothes. And I just, I know that at one point, Halston was in Chicago and saw me in the Ebony Fashion Fair. You just never know who's sitting in the audience. But he was a kind of unknown at the time, too. <laughs> so it's kind of like everybody was starting their careers, 1960s, you know, the early 63, 64, 65. Because actually I had started when I was 13, really, being in pictures, but just being photographed. Pat, I loved reading that even though your modeling career had started at this point, you actually still had your dreams set on being a fashion designer. So your mom had really instilled this love of design in you and she taught you how to sew and you and her made all of these wonderful clothes that you wore. And I loved reading that it was actually your own designs that got you first discovered by Vogue. You were chased down basically, <laughs> but down the subway by Vogue editor, fashion Vogue editor, Carrie Donovan asking you, just having to know who designed your clothes. And this was, of course, you. Can you tell us about your early 
designs and your first Vogue experiences? After in the fashion fair, um, I went back to school. I went to art and design for fashion design and illustration. And I did really well right away. I, I hadn't modeled for that year, but I was applying myself to my art. And uh, somehow I was walking to school one day and there was a bus strike. And I had um, been discovered by Carrie Donovan. And she, wow, she was like such an important editor. She was like Mrs. Vreeland's favorite. Mrs. Vreeland was the head editor. And she was like amazing goddess uh, from Japan, empress style, red cheeks and very from the 1920s. Actually, she knew my godmother, Madame Metcalf, in the 1920s. My godmother was a uh, editor at Vogue in France, and she translated a lot of works. Um, but anyway, that fact came up much later that I didn't realize when I was there in that time. But I had gone up to Vogue. Finally, they had called for me. I was in school and designing, and they saw my clothes, and they wanted me to do pictures in, in my outfits as a new designer. So I get double-page spread in Vogue as a new designer, and I get an opportunity to design for Henry Bendel's a collection, which I did, and I enjoyed it. And then I went back up to Vogue, after a year, and they wanted to photograph me um, for an article about springtime. And I remember there was Barry Berenson and Joel Schumacher, who's now a film director. And she took my picture, and there it was in vogue again as a designer. So it was kind of, I was on that path. And I went back up to vogue again. They called me again. But this time something else happened. Suddenly, it was like um, they wanted me to pose for them. And I thought that was very strange because that was <laughs> not my intention at all. So by this time, I had already started modeling a little bit. Besides doing the fashion fair was a super big thing because it was star-studded and, you know, it got a lot of publicity. But I was going around being photographed in studios, you know, trying to put a portfolio together and get an agent, and I was also dancing and making, um, being in small films, traveling to Mexico and different places. But um, other than that, I came back to New York, and I had uh, the opportunity to work with Ole Cassini and Jacques Tifot, and I became their fitting models. And uh, they suggested I get an agent, which was Ford, and I, I went there and they were reluctant, but then they took me because of Ole Cassini and Shot Tifot. And so then I, I started modeling and um, I, I sort of just fell in with the designers because that's what my interest was really with making clothes and beautiful <laughs> clothes. And you know, it wasn't so much about me putting on makeup and things, but my mother always said, if you don't wear makeup, you're going to be an old maid. So I put on the makeup. <laughs> <laughs> and it was different to be a model back then, right? Like you did all your own makeup for um, well, for photo shoots and, and fashion shows. Yeah, you had to be your own person, like a person that you have to be a fashion person. Like, a, well, how would I say? Ladies in society always 
looked a certain way or dressed a certain way, you know. So you had to push, make your own face, uh, your own hairstyles and inventive. You had to be inventive. So I was pretty easy for me because to me it was like acting or pretending or basically copying my mom. <laughs> do what she did. I would put my makeup on the way she put it on or I, I I really observed her and dressed the way she dressed or but more in my own style. You know, I would make mini dresses and dress up in that and make the hair long ponytails, you know, very sixties with seventies and well it was still the sixties before I got any recognition in society because I still had to meet these wonderful designers that I that were brand new and coming up and I remember I went to Vogue and they said, Oh, we want to send you out to meet this new designer at Henry Bindell's. By this time I had stopped designing, so I didn't have a collection there, but I went up to Henry Bindell's and I met Stephen Burroughs, <gasps> who suddenly I discovered was making everything the way that I had hoped to make it. So I just gave up designing, and he said to me, you just are the perfect girl for me. And I stayed there and became his fitting model, and I became his friend, and he became my friend. And so we would go out to parties and dress up with his whole entourage. Stephen Burroughs' world was magnificent. At Bindell's, it was like a black patent leather room with all colorful clothes and he had beautiful friends who were very talented and creative, and they made music and grew plants and knew how to make interior decorating. So we had a little tribe of friends, F. Stevens, that we went out with. And one night, went to this party, and it was like um, Giorgio and Angelo. He introduced me to him. I started working with him, and then he introduced Halston came and sat down next to me and said, I know you, I've seen you before. So he invited me to also his atelier. I started to be his model there. And then everything started happening. Vogue came to me, and as I was going around trying to be photographed, suddenly I found myself in the pages of Vogue for Irving Penn. Wow. And I had a big spread, and I was like 19 and that kind of set me on my way. Besides Charles Tracy and a whole bunch of other, Avedon and Irving Penn, and every, many uh, photographers came over from London and Paris and photographed me for 19. And I, it was just, they started photographing me for foreign magazines mostly. And then I got an agent, which was kinder to me other than being with Ford, who weren't sure if I should be with him or not because if, you know, racial things, I guess, you know, they didn't think I was um, fair enough or whatever. I don't know. But I went off with Wilhelmina, who was a wonderful Dutch model who had so many covers of Vogue, and she believed in me. And after I got with her, things started happening for me because she was a very good agent. She said, uh, you know, I think you, you could have a better opportunity in Europe than Zap Bam. You know, before I knew it, I was on a first-class ticket, which I saved up my money for. And I was on my way to Italy to my agent there, which I I only stayed for a day because there were too many playboys at the time. And I, 
And so I went off and actually I hadn't mentioned that while I was up at Vogue uh, in 69 and uh, uh, 17, I'd met an uh, illustrator called Menning Obergon, who was Diana Vreeland's right-hand illustrator because at the time when people went to the Paris collections in the 60s, early 70s, there were no photographers that were like today, no film made. It was just a private event where the illustrator would go and make the drawing of the clothes. So this Manning Obergam was the reason that when I was up at Vogue, he wanted to illustrate me in the clothes that would go into the magazine. So he was my first real job up at Vogue, posing like for a month at the, in the green room posing in all the clothes that would be going into the magazines. And that's where I had a connection with Mrs. Freeland because I would be in her office every day, <laughs> stripped down like a chicken with no feathers <laughs> in my robe and listening to her and being with her and having her rip the clothes off and put the clothes on. And it was quite an experience. And then after Mrs. Freeland and Manning went to Europe for the collections, so there was no illustrator and as I was there up at Vogue waiting to be illustrated, this beautiful young man walked in and his name is Antonio Lopez, the illustrator. Yes. And he was the person who invited me to come to Europe to work with him. And because of him, I was able to go to Paris. And I went to Paris to stay with Antonio Lopez to be his sketch model. And we lived in this very tiny apartment that was given to us by Carl Lagerfeld and it was me and Donna Jordan and Juan and a male model and Corey Tippin and oh we all lived in this tiny apartment with no kitchen so we were obliged to dress up and go out until finally Carl started inviting us Carl Lagerfeld but we'd work all day on these illustrations and pose and get hungry and go out and so we became sort of like the talk of the town. We were sort of like Donna was, you know, one of Andy Warhol's stars and Andy had photographed me and they were just crazy for Andy Warhol and they knew we were part of his entourage and Antonio Lopez was so extraordinarily beautiful and charismatic and magnetic and every everybody wanted to be with us, Paloma Picasso and all those young royal kids and it was just like our tribe was like attracting so much attention because we were pop art Americans with good music and we could dance. And we'd go to the club set at night and dance and with new music and new dances and people just could not believe our energy. And we'd dress up in Carl Lagerfeld and, and then finally I, I just remember that, you know, somehow... We got in with Eve, and Eve was very young and just starting out very well with his atelier. And so it was between Eve and Carl and Kinso, and there was Terry Mugler and all these wonderful creative people. And, you know, just traveling around Europe, being photographed in the south of France and getting on boats and going to Africa and doing the things that I had seen people do in Vogue posing at the Acropolis, and I was doing those things. I was going on locations around the world. And that's what we used to do, editorial shootings in London. I would pose in London with Parkinson, 
who would photograph the queen the same day he'd photograph me. And it was just marvelous. I mean, what an education in fashion and Sandra Rhodes, King's Road and all the music, you know, and hanging out with the Beatles and, you know, being friends up at Apple Records, being in the movies there. And I had such a wonderful time being in Italy as well. All of these fantastic designers and quality of their clothes. And oh my gosh, you know, there's just so much to fashion. They call it fashion, but it's more like living in a certain style, you know. It's, they call it fashion to make it fast, and it is fast. Business is fast. But it's not like people don't have a life. They're, the designers and the artists, they have real lives, and they're all friends, really outside of business, you know, and that's when you start making your friendships and you, you realize how lucky you are. You come back to America and you, you find a young designer named Patrick Kelly who wants to go off and be a designer. And so I bought him a ticket and he went to Paris and he had the integrity <laughs> and he became someone that everyone wanted to be around because of he was such a wonderful, charismatic young man. Yeah, and Patrick was really an incredibly gifted designer. And actually, Dress Listeners, our next episode coming up is actually on Patrick Kelly in commemoration of what would have been his 65th birthday. So be sure and tune in for that. And we're going to hear more from you, Pat, after a brief sponsor break. Dress listeners, we often refer to ourselves on the show as dress detectives, but what if we told you that you could travel back in time and solve your own fashionable mysteries? Because you can, by joining us in playing June's Journey. And April, I can't tell you how much fun I've had playing June's Journey. It's this <laughs> hidden object mystery game with a captivating detective story. It takes you back to the glamour and intrigue of the 1920s with this diverse cast of characters. And basically, each new scene takes you further into the story of a thrilling murder mystery that sets the main protagonist, June Parker, on a quest to solve the murder of her sister and uncover her family's many secrets. You will sleuth with June in the antique parlors of New York, the chic sidewalks of Paris, and you can even build your own luxury island estate where you get to decorate and plant decadent gardens. And there's also a chat and challenge feature where you can play alongside friends. So join us, dress listeners, in putting on your detective hats and escape to a bygone age of mystery, danger, and romance. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Cass, as you know, we are going to be expanding our fashion history travel offerings this year. Mm -hmm. So you better bet that I'm going to be brushing up on my language skills with Rosetta Stone. With more than 25 languages offered, including Spanish, French, Italian, German, Korean, Chinese, Japanese, Dutch, Arabic, Polish, and so many more, that world out there is practically at the tip of your tongue. And that's right, dress listeners. For more than 30 years, Rosetta Stone has been the expert in language learning. There are no English translations, so you really learn to speak, listen, and think in that language, which is incredible. You learn by immersion, and their programs are available to use on your desktop or as an app. And let's not forget that there is an amazing built-in true accent feature that gives you feedback on your pronunciation so you learn the proper accent from the very start. 
For a limited time, dress listeners, you can get Rosetta Stone's lifetime membership for 50% off by visiting rosettastone.com forward slash today. That's 50% off unlimited access to 25 language courses for the rest of your life. Redeem your 50% off at rosettastone.com forward slash today. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. Welcome back, dress listeners. Pat, our listeners will be familiar with your role in the Battle of Versailles. We've already done an episode on the 1973 quote-unquote battle that put American fashion on the international map, but I'm hoping you can tell us a little bit more what that experience was like for you. It was not anything other than doing a benefit, but it turned out to be some kind of what they called a battle. And it seems like you know, the American designers hadn't really been on the stage in Paris. And when it came time to be at Versailles, it was a royal event. And the Americans just shined. You know, we had all of those girls who could walk. And, and the music was so American and modern lighting. And it just was something so new. And the French embraced us. So they call it a battle, but I think they just fell in love with us because you know, I had already been in Paris working, so it was like going home for me, but for a whole bunch of girls, it was their first time touching down there, and then they went back and had that opportunity again. So I think, you know, you get certain opportunities, and you go off to Versailles, and you, you dine under the chandeliers and the cherubs, and you you meet the Duchess of Windsor, and you, you drink champagne with her and Princess Grace, and you meet all of these wonderful people in fashion because everybody dresses so beautifully because they feel that dressing makes them happy. <laughs> <laughs> it does. I mean, living a life in fashion is, I think, a gift in many ways. And you've done it so mm-hmm. beautifully. <laughs> I've been very blessed because the people around me have all loved each other sincerely out of respect and you know, just adoring each other's style. I mean, it's like they're just different flowers, that's all. (laughs) And can you tell us a little bit about how your signature walk developed? You know, I kind of say walk in quotation marks because it's so much more than that. And it's just this incredible (laughs) performance that you give us each and every time that is so all your own and so Platt Cleveland. And can you tell us a little bit about, you know, the role that dance played in its development, but also the people who helped you to develop it? Well, yeah, when I was a child, I used to dance with a wonderful African-American lady, Catherine Dunnan. I danced as a child with Catherine Dunnan, and I was her, her little mascot. And all of these wonderful people would be in the class, like Marlon Brando and Earthy Kid and oh, wonderful ladies. And I would hang off the monkey bars and make fun and they'd laugh and they'd play the drums. And I always, I always wanted to be a dancer, but I was too tall at that time. So I always felt that something that moves your heart like that can move your clothes too. 
(laughs) (laughs) You know, I I just consider myself a flagpole moving the fabric. (laughs) (laughs) But you bring dance and movement. Even your first cover of Ebony Fashion Fair in 1966, you're you're already moving. You're making the clothes move, you know, um, already at that Mm. early point in your career. And then you bring that to the stage in such a wonderful way that really shares you know, with the audience, you're the joy of fashion. You know how it feels when you put in a new dress, you feel all twinkly and <laughs> you just want to start showing off your goodies. Like, this is how I feel. This dress makes me feel really beautiful. You know, even if you get something ugly on, it's just, it, it has its own beauty too. <laughs> you know, like the spirit of the clothes is just somebody believed in that look and you're going to go along with their fantasy and enjoy their ride with them because they had a, vis- a vision, you know? Like sometimes you think, what is this? And then you put it on and you become a part of their world, like how they see things, you know? It's like more about wearing the designer than even wearing the garment. Yeah, but what you've brought specifically to I think <laughs> that is so incredib- incredibly special. I'm a happy person. I don't let one minute get away from me that I don't see something beautiful in it. You know, like even a dead leaf or something, you know. When you think of all those people who sew, every stitch is like a minute of your life. And I just basically do it because I think that the people who make the clothes are part of the dress too, you know. I see them... I've been in so many ateliers and watched the ladies stitching. I really, I think they're wonderful. They're just so wonderful. They're just part of me. I feel like they're part of the dress. (laughs) Yes, absolutely. Um, And so are you. I've been watching a lot of Pat Cleveland runway uh, moments over the past couple weeks in anticipation of this this, Oh, my uh, gosh. (laughs) And um, Terry Moogler's, I think, were particularly fun. Um, you know, I saw you as a flower blossom and as a kitty cat. Uh, I mean, you just bring so much joy to the runway and you have so much fun with it. And I just, I really appreciate that. Yeah, you can have fun in everything. Put in a glove. <laughs> it turns into a puppet. You know, put in a sock on your hand. It's a puppet. You know, you can turn those clothes around. But I, I just know Moogler has such a fantastic imagination that he just infuses you with his his vision. And you just want to be that ball of energy that brings it to life for him. Because, you know, he's one of the first ones to put on those big shows where it's for entertainment as well. You know, he and Kenzo. And, yeah, I mean, I remember those shows from the 70s. They were so magnificent and so lively, you know. It's not like when I first began, you walk with a number in silence. Right. (laughs) Staging and music and people cheering, you know. So you do it because you want your audience not to feel bored. You know, it's nothing like a, you know, wet dress and a hanger. You don't (laughs) want to be a wet dress and a hanger dripping and soggy. You don't know what it looks like. You want it steamed. Steamed. I got mm-mm, steam heat. <laughs> <laughs> da, 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 uh, chase away the blues. 
In fact, you're still modeling. I just saw you and your daughter walking and singing your way down the runway this last fashion week. It was absolutely wonderful. I'm telling you, that was just spontaneous. <laughs> we just did that in the bathroom five minutes before, and she said, do it on the runway. I was just singing to Anna. You know, we always sing to each other. And they put it on the runway. I can't believe it. <laughs> so we get out there, and we winged it. We just faked it to and we, you know, we like to do fun stuff. And for her, she and I to be together, she's always traveling. So that was just a special moment. We never get to work together really very often. Um, you know, she just came off the Follies. She was a star of the Follies. Bajir, for example. I saw that. And it was so wonderful to see her doing Josephine Baker because, yes. you know, my my great aunt was Josephine Baker's Sunday school teacher and told Josephine, get on, get on that training. Get out of town, girl. You need to work it. You got it. She taught her to play the piano. And it's always been sort of in my family to have this wonderful showgirl Josephine in our lives. Right. And why it was so special that you met her at the Battle of Versailles, right? I knew her before that. Oh, you did? Uh-huh. I knew her before that, and I danced on stage with her once at the <laughs> Carnegie Hall in another place. And I was going to go up and be in her show, but she died the week before I got there. Oh. I was going to try to be in one of those, you know, cabaret yeah. with her. Yeah. Um, I love the way Josephine kind of comes in and out of your life, too, because you yourself, of course, have portrayed her many times on stage. There's wonderful footage of you on a Patrick Kelly runway as Josephine Baker. and We all love her because she's the, the number one showgirl, you know, for Black society because she escaped such danger and she was able to live a beautiful life. Yes. And that's what we look for. We want to have a beautiful life. All Everybody. Yeah. Yes, absolutely. Essence Magazine just inaugurated their Best in Black Fashion Awards, and you were the first person to ever receive the Icon Award. Um, oh my God. I was I, in their first issue. I was in their first issue. That's I what I was going to say. Gordon, yeah. Gordon Parks and Susan Taylor. And, and oh, my God, there were so many wonderful people. And it was just like, okay, we got to believe. We got to believe. Let's keep marching it forward. And they were so advanced. They were already vegetarians, using natural fabrics, pushing international flavor into the black community. It was just enlightening to be with them. And now they did the music and the awards and it just developed, didn't it? And the beautiful editors they have now. And it's just beautiful. I'm so proud. Thank you. Yeah. And, you know, I just, I'm curious because you've been a model now for 50 plus years. And I'm just, what does it mean to receive an award like this? Does it kind of cause you to look back over your career? And it just, it brings everything into the present. Like you see the work and you see the development and you think this is a good thing. You know, when you're at the beginning of things, most of the time I'm at the beginning of things before they develop. I don't know. That's just my path. But then you see there's a room, a platform for many more people. And you think, oh, wow. Look at all of these new people. And you think, okay, that was good. That's good we made that little walking path, which is now a highway <laughs> or runway at an airport. I don't know. It just opened doors. You think of how wonderful it is that things develop, you know? And even with having been able to enjoy fashion for so many years and 
work with new designers. And it's just amazing how people can take their imagination and make a life, you know. And that's kind of what I do. I use my, my imagination and I make a life for myself. And I paint and I draw and I write and I make music. And I, every day I do a little something that makes me happy. And I think modeling makes me happy because I get to be with these wonderful people. Pat, thank you so much for being with us today and sharing with us, you know, the art, magic, and joy of fashion and yourself. Really, thank you so much. Keep stitching, keep singing, <laughs> keep painting, keep seeing the things that make you happy and have bliss consciousness. <laughs> thank you, Pat. And we're sending you lots of love and light your way as well. Thank you for that prayer. and. Have a good day. You know, April, originally I had titled this episode A Life Lived in Fashion, but after interviewing Pat, I changed it immediately to The Joy of Fashion. Isn't her joy infectious? Yes. And she is one strong, super inspiring woman cast. Essence's Black Fashion Awards was one of her very first public appearances this year after being diagnosed with cancer this year. But at the awards, she revealed that she feels like a phoenix rising from the ashes, in large part and thanks to the fashion community's outpouring of support. So Pat, you are so loved and we are sending you loads and loads of even more love on your road to recovery. Yes, absolutely. And again, thank you to Pat Cleveland for taking the time to talk to us and to Mark and her husband, Paul, for setting it all up. Well, that does it for us today, dress listeners. May you consider Pat's legacy and the joy of fashion next time you get dressed. Just a reminder that Cass and I will be at the Bard Graduate Center in New York City this coming Thursday, which is September 19th. Um, so please join us if you'd like to tune into our uh, lecture series that's part of the Fashion, Anxiety, and Society series. We will be talking about gender. Right. And you can head on over to the Bard Graduate Center events page and get your tickets now. And if you have a moment to please take the time to rate and review us on iTunes. And we also love hearing from you. So please write to us at dressed at iheartmedia.com. And as always, be sure and follow along on Instagram at dressed underscore podcast. This is also our Twitter handle and you can follow us on Facebook at dressed podcast without the underscore. Last but not least, thank you to our producers, Holly Fry, Casey Pegram, and everyone else at iHeartMedia that makes the show possible each week. Catch you soon. Dress, the history of fashion is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app, Apple Podcasts, or wherever else you listen to your favorite shows. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.